Show Me the Science with Professor Luke O'Neill. Hello, I'm Luke O'Neill and welcome to my Show Me the Science podcast. Now, this is a subject that really fascinates people. Not that the other ones don't. Of course, they're all fascinating in their own ways. But this one seems to get people's imagination. And I've been following this myself ever since I heard the song Lucy in the Sky with diamonds, which allegedly was about a psychedelic substance. And what I'm going to tell you all about is new information on the science of psychedelic substances. Now, it's a fascination because our minds are wonderful things, aren't they? And, you know, we've all these kinds of uh, thoughts and things going on. You can take a chemical that will make you see things. All the colours of the bow, man. And have the psychedelic experience. And it's all very, very interesting in terms of how the mind works. Huge amount of research actually is going into this. And the reason why I'm telling you about this is there's a massive resurgence of interest in psychedelic substances because of their potential benefits. There's beneficial effects of these things for us as well. And there are clinical trials underway at the moment into MDMA, which is also called ecstasy. The drug ecstasy, not just a party drug, but now a potentially groundbreaking study says MDMA could have real medical benefits, even helping people cope with the worst of traumas. Maggie Ruley has all the details. A drug called dimethyltryptamine, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca tea, which I guess many would have heard of, and I'll come back to that in a moment, and then psilocybin which is the psychedelic chemical in magic mushrooms. And these trials, very serious trials, are running because there's more and more evidence that these could be new ways to treat severe anxiety and severe depression. Very important mental health issues where we need new treatments. And is it possible now to deploy these new therapeutic agents, we'll call them, to treat these conditions? And one really interesting one is uh, severe depression in people who are terminally ill. And that's a very serious problem. And it turns out that some of the work behind this um, began in people who were terminally ill. And if they took something like psilocybin, they got massive relief and the depression began to lift and nothing else could really achieve that for them. And it's a very important thing, obviously. So all these trials are running and they're being well supported by, you know, very reputable groups. Uh, They're running. uh, The one on psilocybin is running until 2023, for example. There's a massive one that's in Australia. There's a massive one in the U.S., with the term of the ill patients, actually. And some of the early trials have shown benefits. And that's now provoking your big double-blind placebo-controlled trial to see whether these will show any benefits or not. And if they did, it'll be tremendous because these are very serious things. Now, how do we get to the point of using a chemical from a plant, like a mushroom, for example, to potentially treat anxiety and depression? And what are plants doing with these things anyway? you might wonder. And again, great science behind this. And I've just read a really fascinating book about fungi. And why do mushrooms make these kinds of chemicals? Well, it could be, but I don't know is the the first thing, of course, but it is being studied very closely. Uh, One good example is a mushroom called Ophiocordyceps. And ants feed off that mushroom and they eat some of the mushroom. And guess what? There's a psilocybin-like molecule in that mushroom that changes the ant's behavior. They're called carpenter ants. And these ants, once they eat the mushroom, 
They climb up to the top of a plant, which they wouldn't normally do. Their behaviour changes completely. And then the fungus is growing in their bodies uh, because obviously they've eaten it and it's sort of grown in them, I suppose. Uh, and they release spores. So it's a way to release the spores of the mushroom and allow the, mush- the fungus rather to disseminate and spread. So these ants, are, their, their whole behaviour is changing because they've eaten some mushrooms and that changes the mind of the ant. That's if the ant has a mind, but it's certainly got a central nervous system. System, and it changes the behaviour. So maybe one of the reasons that fungi have these then is to change behaviour in some way to allow spores to spread. A bit like the way we eat fruit and then seeds spread, for example. Fungi are spread through spores and maybe that's one reason why these fungi evolved these special chemicals that change insect behaviour for a start. And it just so happens that we in our brains have similar pathways as the ant and if we eat the mushroom then our behaviour changes just like the ant but it may have evolved specifically for insects that's something we don't know and we're kind of piggybacking on an evolutionary thing that was just for insects and loads and loads of fungi have these psychedelic substances they're called ergoalkaloids is the name of the family and loads of examples through history of them being used in various ways by different cultures and in fact there's one idea that part of our, our cultural evolution, if you will, as a species, was down to eating these psychedelic things. And that gave us a different perception of the world, maybe, and inspired great creativity, say, or even spiritual belief, you never know. So there's a debate going on as to whether it is a fundamental part of what we're like as, as human beings, in a way, is to sort of consume these sorts of things. And then, and then we kind of evolve, not quite evolve, but certainly we change as a species and begin thinking of the world in a different way. And some examples I want to give you that I came across um, was this. Uh, in Siberia, shaman there in, in, in ancient times uh, used to eat the famous red and white spotted mushroom, Calamanita muscaria, and then the shaman would have these uh, hallucinations. They're wondering about Hieronymus Bosch's paintings. Anybody who knows about Bosch, these are really interesting paintings. There's a good chance he was eating something that contained these ergo alkaloids. Uh, moles can have them and mushrooms and so on. Another example is uh, the Salem witch trials in New England. They think that might have been ergo or ergot, as it's pronounced sometimes, contaminating some of the grain, and that was being eaten, and people began to hallucinate, you know. We have found a witch! Might we burn her? Burn her! Burn her! do you know she is a witch? She looks like one! Yeah, she looks Bring her forward. What makes you think she's a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt? Got better. Burn her so we have a long history of the, uh, the use of these things, either accidentally or otherwise. And of course, they're seen in many different things, not just in fungi. The peyote cactus is a famous one. And indeed, the ayahuasca tea, as I mentioned, used in Central Ameri- in, in South American um, rituals. You know, so all these different plants were kind of discovered by accidents by humans that contain these, um, these psychedelic substances. Now, this consuming of them and this sense of spirituality and cultural advancement. That gave rise to a hypothesis, which I love. It's called the stoned ape hypothesis, where maybe our ancestral ape cousins, if you will, our ancestors were consuming these things, and that really allowed their brains to change in some way, and we began to develop the unique features of us as a species, perhaps, by consuming some of these things. And certainly the effects they have on the brain are so remarkable, you never know, and it's a very interesting debate as to what's going on there. Now, if we look at the mechanism, then, and we move beyond the... um, the cultural bit, how do they work? Again, remarkable science has gone on trying to figure out 
how these things do what they do. And the only very all these psychedelic substances do very similar things. They will they seem to bind all of them seem to bind to things in your brain called the serotonin receptor 5-HT2A. Bit of a mouthful. But this receptor is in your brain. It binds a thing called serotonin, also called 5-HT. And serotonin is a very interesting neurotransmitter anyway, because many antidepressants will target serotonin, the SSRIs, for example. They're the serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors. Uh, So serotonin has been worked on for a long time as a brain neurochemical. And then if we alter it, you can affect mood, say through depression and so on. But these psychedelic agents, they bind very, very tightly to this. And very recently, in the past year or so, they got a structure of the substances binding the 5-HT receptor and they bind so tightly, almost irreversibly, is the, um, is the way they bind. So they bind very, very tightly. And this, this tight binding then really may affect how serotonin works and so on. Quite how that makes you see these things psychedelically is not that clear, by the way. A second very interesting discovery was, recently again, there's a thing in your brain called the default mode network. And this is sort of a a neural network pathway in your brain in many ways. And these psychedelic substances seem to affect that. And that's been another quite recent discovery in many ways. Now, what is this network? Well, it's been called the school teacher of your brain. It keeps all the neurons in check, if you will, and stops them misbehaving. It orders the brain's networks in a way, and that's a very general way to put it. But it seems to affect that network in various ways. And when you're daydreaming and relaxing, this network is burning away, kind of on a low hum in a way, and keeping everything in order. And daydreaming seems to be part of the, the trigger for this in a way. But what all these psychedelics do is they shut down that network and they open up all these connections. In other words, the brain gets very unruly. And there's great images of this from or MRI scanners and all kinds of things, all these networks begin to change in your brain if you take these substances. And it seems to control this network in some way. And that may then tie into various things happening. One big one is, if you open up all these networks, they think your sense of self begins to change. Now, whatever that means, I don't know. But, but certainly people on psychedelic substances, they feel this oneness and they feel this great connection with other people. And that may be one reason why they're giving relief uh, to the terminally ill, for instance, because you go beyond yourself in a way and, and, and move out of this default mode network, establishing your sense of self in a way, possibly. But still, that's, it's a bit sort of hand-wavy, that, in my view. But certainly, there's something happening with the default mode network with these psychedelic substances, and that seems to be part of their mechanism and allows all this interconnectedness to happen. And then your, your personality might change, how you see things might change, all kinds of things. And all these things, all these psychedelic substances seem to have that effect on that network, and that's a big part of what they do. Now, as I say, they can be very... Uh, the, these trials are running, and it'd be low-dose, they're being well-controlled. You know, they're very careful with them because these drugs can cause all kinds of problems, remember. And uh, you've got to be very careful with them. Let's have a word of warning here. People would take these if, if they are anxious or depressed and they might get the wrong dose. And a recent study in 2020 looked at over 1,300 people who self-medicated, if you will, and four, over 4% of them had to seek emergency treatment because obviously they had a problem taking them, you know. And this was five times higher than recreational use because obviously they were taking too much or whatever it was. So uncontrolled use of these is dangerous. We've got to be very careful. These are very powerful agents, you see. We've got to be very careful. And the clinical trials then are being very carefully done just to see if they can get the dose right and control it in various ways. And, of course, optimism prevails. 
because these early studies and even the one on the ayahuasca tea extract the dimethyltryptamine is the active ingredient there that showed beneficial effects 70% of people said their anxiety got better 78% said depression improved for example Um, you know so there are hints that these things are working if they're used in the right way and let's hope that these trials continue to yield interesting results because in this class of compounds then we may well have treatments for people who are suffering from severe anxiety or severe depression or indeed if they're terminally ill and are depressed that that may be the first place to see them being approved and as long as it's done properly and the trials are controlled as is happening at the moment we can look forward to further data coming out of these trials and keep our fingers crossed because wouldn't it be great if there were more options for people with severe uh, conditions such as depression there you have it the science of psychedelic substances science never sleeps lots of research happening let's see what happens now at these trials and let's see what the the future brings for this very interesting area thanks for listening Uh, my podcast show with the science is available to download every thursday and it's a news talk production